As we come now before the Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles now for the final time to the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. We'll be here this morning in Hebrews chapter 13. (coughs) And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, this is your holy word. There is nothing like this for us. So help us to receive this now for all the joy and weight that it is. We know these things are breathed out by you. They are profitable. They benefit us to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and train us in righteousness so that we would be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, would you do that work in us now by your Spirit? Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. I want to read here these final six uh, verses. So we'll begin in verse 20. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers... Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Ah. There we are. We have finally made it here to the end of the book of Hebrews. And now, really, that we are at the end, we know that technically the word book of Hebrews is not perhaps the best word, although it's all right to call it a book. The author here calls his writing a word of exhortation. In other words, a word of encouragement. This here, what we've heard in these past months, is really a sermon that has been preached and is now put down here in written form with this greeting here at the end attached and now being sent all over. And so these listeners who were receiving this written sermon are now to be exhorted and encouraged by it. And in speaking about his whole writing, the author says that he's written to us briefly And he also asked that we would bear with him, both of which make me chuckle a little bit. He says, I've written briefly because it seems that there's more, much more that he might be able to say, might want to say. There are still treasures in his writing that he's had to leave behind. So he wrote briefly, but he also says, bear with me because he knows that it's a bit of a stretch. It's a stretch to ask his listeners to stick with him through this whole thing. If we read this whole sermon out loud, all in one sitting, 
all 13 chapters. It might take us maybe an hour, maybe less. So if you think I preach long, well, maybe next Sunday I'll just read the whole book of Hebrews all the way through. For us, really, to go through this whole thing, it has taken us 10 months to, Im- to unpack the whole book of Hebrews. We started, if you remember back that far, in January, and it's now the end of October. In all of that time, it is good for us to bear with these things, to hold on to these things, and to endure in these things. We know that anything that is worthwhile is worth putting work into. And what could be more worth our while than to hear the very voice of God, which we hear nowhere else but in the pages of the Bible? So we put work into this. We bear with this. But it's interesting to me that the author encouraged us now to bear with him at the end. Does that strike anyone else as odd? You know, if you've got a friend, or maybe you are this person who tells, you know, the the long stories, the ones that kind of wander a little like this. I'm a little that way, maybe a lot that way. You might, if you're self-aware, you maybe recognize it and perhaps even acknowledge this. At the beginning of the story, you say, bear with me, or when you find out that you've wandered and trying to get back, bear with me. But it's odd to say, bear with me at the end. And I think he now has put this at the end, bear with me in this, because he encourages them and us to be often returning to this. That we would continue to bear with these things, that we would keep pressing into these things, especially with the help of Christian leaders. If you were here with us last week, you might remember that the author's final words before the closing that we've read here is to encourage the people to rightly obey and submit to their leaders. These Christian leaders are ones who have responsibility to watch over the care of your souls, and they will be called to account for the way that they led in this. We know that the ultimate leader, of course, is Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, But there are other Christian leaders. Timothy, for example, is mentioned here. And there are many other leaders that he says, make sure you greet them together. These leaders are helping us to navigate the word of God well. And we need that help. If we're really going to hear this rightly, if you just flip back through the pages of just the book of Hebrews, you might remember that the author has taken us through some really tricky waters in these past months. We've heard the author shift back and forth between what we've called wooing and warning to woo us with the hope and the glory of the good news of Jesus, but then almost in the same breath to warn us with very stern, stark, shaking us awake of the dangers of falling away from Jesus. The author has taken us through navigating how the Old Testament were copies and shadows, the temple, the offerings, all those things, shadows of the reality that is to be found in Christ. We've, we've heard the author unpack covenants, the promises of God, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, 
uh, that, that, uh, in which he'll write the law on our heart and remember our sin no more. The author taught us how to walk by faith and not only by sight. And the author is encouraging us, exhorting us, perhaps even spanking us to mature in Jesus. And not just to drink milk as a baby would, but to take on the rich meal that we would grow wise and strong as we deepen our understanding of the central truth here in this writing that Jesus is better. He wants us to get all of that, and the author has spent 13 chapters now working to teach us all of these things. We've spent these 10 months bearing with him, working to listen well on these things, and now, here at the end of it all, the author gives us what we call a benediction. If you worship here with us, Regularly, you'll recognize that word. He doesn't use that word particularly here, but that's what this is. We have a benediction here as part of our worship at the end of every worship service. The word benediction literally means benediction. It means good word. A benediction is a blessing. That's verses 20 and 21 here. That's the blessing, and at the end of the blessing... He seals it with the word amen. With the word amen. And putting that amen in there, I know that makes it sound like a prayer. Does it sound like a prayer to you? Uh, but that's not, that, not all that the word amen is used for. I know in our household, we hear it less than we used to. Uh, but when we are reading to Eliza a little storybook for bedtime, often you reach the last page and you turn it and there's nothing else. And Eliza closes the book and says, Amen. Somehow, in her mind, at least, and it's logical to assume this, that amen means the end. Amen means it's over. But that's not what amen means. Amen means so be it. It means so be it, or yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. That's why it's fitting in some denominations, not Presbyterians, because we don't say a word, I guess, during parts of services, that in the middle of a sermon in some groups, people shout out, you know, amen, or you hear the preacher go, can I get an amen, you know, in the the middle? Yeah, I know that would make us uncomfortable. I won't ask you to do it. Um, But but that's, uh, that's what we're saying. We're saying, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. We say amen or sing it often at the end of our hymns. That's right. So be it. We say amen at the end of our prayers, and now we hear an amen at the end of the benediction. So be it. But we should distinguish between benedictions and prayers because they are different. A prayer is something, a word spoken from us to God. A prayer is from us to God. A benediction comes the other way. A benediction is a good word, a blessing from God to us. So we offer up prayers, but we receive benedictions. The most famous benediction in the Bible 
you'll recognize this because, well, we sing it every so often. Uh, in Numbers chapter 6, let me read the, the whole thing. It's at the end of chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. The benediction, this blessing, is what the Lord gives and the people receive. Now, the big question for us today is, what here in Hebrews is the particular blessing that the Lord is giving to the listeners? What is the particular blessing that God is giving us here? Let's look very closely at verses 20 and 21. Let me just read it again to listen for the particular blessing. Verse 20, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. The center of the blessing here is that God would equip us. So I suppose now we need to ask a follow-up question. What does it mean that God equips us with everything good? If you're reading out of a different translation, if you've got your own Bible in your lap, it might read that God would make us complete or that God would make us perfect, or that God would make us ready, and somehow maybe that uh, muddies the waters a little bit. Any of these translations are, are good, but I think it's helpful in some ways to say that God equips us. We just need to get a grip on what that is. It can be a little confusing, because when I hear the word equip, I often think of someone giving me tools to do something. Maybe they would train me or show me how to do something. That's equipping in my mind. So it reminds me of uh, the, the, the TV show uh, Worst Cooks in America. Anyone seen this? I don't know why the cooking shows are so captivating, but there they are. If you've never seen it, well, that's fine. Um, but the premise of the show, it's some con uh, contest where there's these truly awful uh, cooks and they, they've got two chefs who are trainers and then they narrow them down week by week people get kicked off and then at the end the final two have to make this five-star meal before a panel of experts they're trying to train them how to navigate the kitchen well and one of the trainers uh, chef Anne works with her recruits which is what they call the the worst cooks and, and Chef Anne is a really good teacher, at least I think so. She's got lots of very memorable tricks to help them learn how to navigate the kitchen. So apparently, I learned this from the show, when you're using a knife, you're supposed to hold your hand like a fist or like a claw. But it's common to want to stick your fingers out on the knife. 
But that can be very dangerous. So she goes and marks their fingers red so that they'll see to tuck those in. A chef Anne also gives them uh, little verbal tricks to help them remember things. Uh, one of her most famous is, brown food tastes good. That's how you learn how to cook meat, I guess. Brown food tastes good. We don't want it too light or black. But brown food tastes good. She also often tells them, mise en place. Mise en place, it's French. I had to look it up. It means everything in its place. In other words, when she says mise en place, have you prepared your workstation? Are the pans where they need to be? Are the ingredients where they need to be? Have you set everything out ahead of time so that when you start cooking, you won't become overwhelmed once the clock starts going? So Chef Anne then gives them all this training and guidance uh, for these cooks, and, and they are truly awful. At, at what they do. I say this as someone who's pretty poor at cooking myself. Uh, but they learn. They get better as they practice these things. And at some point in the show, the cooks, the trainers, leave the recruits to cook on their own. I've given you everything I know how. Good luck. They step out, but they don't leave totally. They step into a booth where they watch the recruits from a little monitor television. And it's almost painful to watch them watching their recruits. At times, they're cheering for them. Come on, that's the one. Yes, yes, put the, salt that a little better. But a lot of the time, they're just pulling their hair out. You know, no, 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 no. Don't, don't put that in there. You know, that is not what I taught you to do. You're going to cut your finger off. You know, they're shouting into the monitors at these recruits that they have trained. Now, is that the way that God relates to us? Is that the way that God relates to us? Does God equip us in the sense that he gives us the training, the tools, the knowledge, the mise en place, everything in its place, you know, the, that God became flesh and dwelt among us in Christ, and that, uh, that Christ accomplished salvation in the work of his cross, and now he's given us his scriptures, he's given us all the tools to equip, and at some point then that, that God goes, all right, now he steps in the booth and watches our lives from the TV monitor. That God roots for us and cheers for us sometimes, but at other times he's, he's mostly just pulling his hair out going, that is not how I taught you. You spent 10 months in Hebrews after all. You're going to cut your finger off. That is the way that some Christians think or feel about God. But is that really a benediction? If that's the case, is that really a good word for us? You know, may, may God equip you with all the tools to do his will. May he set out all the pots and the pans in the right place. Uh, but good luck putting together a dish that's pleasing in his sight. Amen. That's not a good word. And that's not what the author tells us here. There's a lot more going on in this. Jesus is better, and his benediction is better. Let's look at the logic here of the benediction. 
verse 20 and 21. The author here starts with the source of the blessing, who the blessing's coming from, his qualifications to bless. He says, may the God of peace, uh, who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus, he's got resurrection. Jesus here is called Lord, the good shepherd of the sheep. He's got a blood of an eternal covenant. Here's his qualifications now to bless us. And at the end of the benediction, he tells us the outcome of the blessing. That all of this would be toward the glory of Jesus forever. Not to our glory, but to the glory of Jesus forever. And then, amen, that's true, so be it. But in the middle, that's where we get the actual blessing. And this is where I think we can arrive at the answer to our question. So let's look at this. The beginning of verse 21, he says, May he equip you. It is God who equips us with everything good. And another part of the blessing is that we would do his will, that which is pleasing through Jesus Christ. This part is through Jesus Christ. If you've got your own Bible, maybe you want to underline that section. If you're If you're the kind of person that marks in through Jesus Christ, don't miss that phrase. Doing God's will is a work of Jesus in us. He is not just up in the television booth watching from the monitor. In other words, we might be able to say God equips us. He puts the mise en place, the ingredients, the knowledge, the tools. Here's how to use the mixing bowl. And God cooks the dish. He stirs the pot. He seasons it with ingredients. He tastes it. He makes sure that the temperature is set correctly, all so that he would produce a meal that is pleasing in his sight. That at the end of this, we would have brown food that tastes real good to the glory of Jesus forever. That's all God's work. That's a blessing. That's the good word to you here. This is the dish that we receive from God, not make and offer to God. Now, some people might say, Nathan, That sounds good, but it almost sounds too good. I maybe want this to be true, but Nathan, if God does all of this, if he equips us and cooks this and works all of these things in us, what role do I play? I mean, how come when I'm cooking my life's dish, I see so much sin in it? How come I smell something burning in it? At at what point does it matter that I'm called to be faithful, that I'm called to obey, if God's going to just do it all anyway? Those are good questions. Let me speak briefly on them. Bear with me here. These are tricky waters, but we need to learn to navigate them. Part of our answer to this is in 1 Corinthians. If I can find it here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just a single verse. 
Listen carefully here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul writes this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So when we look at Paul's life, who is doing the work in Paul's life? Is it Paul? Yes. Paul says, I worked harder than all of them. But was it God who did the work? Yes. (laughs) It's God's grace that is working in me. So when we look at the relation between Paul and God at work in Paul's life, they are not just taking turns in the work. I stir the pot, and then you stir the pot and then I'll stir the pot, and then you stir the pot. They are not just sharing the duties of work. I'll cut the onions while you thaw the meat. Nor is one just training the other to do it. God shows us how to do all the things, and then goes, your turn, and I try to copy. When we look at Paul's life or our lives, both God and the human are fully engaged in the whole work the whole time. Did you hear that? Both are fully engaged in the whole work the whole time. So I am fully responsible for the work that I do in my life. I am called to pursue godliness, to pursue holiness, to pursue faithfulness, And at the same time, God is fully, sovereignly in control of the work of my life, which is why we give him glory for it. So in this sense, it's not quite like the contestants of of Worst Cooks, where one trains and the other takes it and goes with it. Both of these things, it is both my work and God's work in me. Now, if that seems like a paradox, you know, how can my life be both my work and God's work fully at the same time? How can that be? I don't know. Sorry, I don't know. There are lots of things in the scripture I do know that seem to be paradoxical to us. There are lots of truths that are too big to fit together in our minds. One is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, not half and half, fully both. When Jesus spent his time on earth, he is fully somewhere and, as the omnipresent God, everywhere. That the writing of the Bible is fully the work of human authors and fully the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Christian who puts faith in Jesus is simultaneously a sinner and justified by God, guiltless of sin. Lots of these things are mysterious as to how they work. I, I, I just don't know. I don't know how they fit together, and yet they are both true. We should expect truths to be a little beyond us sometimes when we come to the things of God. But here we have another set of truths that are beyond our understanding The work in our own lives is both our own work and God's work. Not half and half, but fully, fully. 
we see it mentioned again, bear with me here, in Philippians chapter 2. Let me pick up at the end of verse 12. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, work out your salvation. He doesn't mean save yourself. He means you need to put effort in this. You need to put some sweat in this to live out your salvation in obedience. And then in the same breath, he just reminds us all of that work is God working in you. And that might seem incompatible. It might seem contradictory, but it's not. And it's very important that we keep them together. J.I. Packer, in a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, calls these things an antinomy when they seem to contradict, but they don't. He, I think, helps us wrestle with how to deal with this here. He says, it's an apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side seemingly irreconcilable, and yet both undeniable. What, then, should one do with an antinomy? We must accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. Refuse to regard the apparent inconsistency as real. In other words, if I can summarize Packer here, he says, don't let one truth push out the other. Work to keep these things together as simultaneous truths. Now, here we are at the end. Let me take all of this, pile in a bus, and drive that bus right into your kitchen. So here you are, standing at the stove of your life, trying to make something, something that you can eat. Standing at the stove with the flour in your hair, with the pot bubbling over and sizzling now on the top of the stove. The timer is going off, but you cannot remember what it was set for or what you're supposed to do with it. There's stuff on the floor. Your arms are greasy, and you're holding a spatula. Now, let me exhort and encourage you to remember two things in the midst of that. As you stand before this stove, one, work at it with all your might. Work at it with all your might. In many ways, the book of Hebrews, it's more than this. All scripture is more than this. But in many ways, it's a recipe book for us. We want to continue to bear with this and to learn from this, to really listen and follow what the author has told us here, that we would 
take the warnings against sin seriously, that we would look at the calls upon our life at them carefully, that we would come to embrace the promises closely, that we would listen to the truths deeply, that we would seek to do in all things in our life to do his will, that we would really work to put it all in the pot and stir it up with all the muscle we can muster, making sure that we never leave out the main ingredient that Jesus is better. So work at it with all your might and to remember that it is God at work in you. It is God at work in you. It is God's very hand on the spatula, too. He is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Remember the words of the benediction here that the Lord Jesus who was raised from the dead by the God of peace, the Lord Jesus, who is the good shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, who sacrificed his own blood to secure eternal covenant promises. This Jesus equips you, putting your kitchen all in its place as it needs to be, and this Jesus works in you to do his will so that when all things are finished and everything is said and done, at the end of it, what is in front of you is the most delicious dish. And the smell of it rises and makes you go, Mmm, Jesus is glorious. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to hold all these truths together? In many ways, this is too big for us, but would you help us, Lord, to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would be the very aroma of Christ Lives, living lives that praise you. Help us to continue to bear with these things, reminding us of your work in us. And Lord, may your grace be with us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.